In Daniel chapter 4, verse 25, it says, You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Today we learn it's lonely at the top for the king. This is day eight. Welcome to the Journey Through Daniel podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's Word. Together we'll discuss the content and meaning of each passage and how the book of Daniel can help us understand more about who God is and the story He's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to the Journey Through Daniel podcast. I'm here once again with Brendan Lang and Kelly Kang. Our authors of our journey books, our commentary. Wow, what an election, huh? <laughs> what an election night. <laughs> Just kidding. We were recording this well before the election. We have no idea who won and we don't care. We kind got... of care. But in the context <laughs> of Daniel, we don't care because power is given and taken away by the Lord. That is, That's what we're learning. It's a timely book, isn't it? It is. It's almost like we picked it for this time. It's almost like the Bible is relevant through all time. Let's not get ridiculous. <laughs> Let's not get ridiculous. This is an old manuscript. How can that be possible? Of course, that's true. I have a question for you relating yeah. to this exact topic. Okay. Let's hear it. Are you a picky eater? Did you talk to my family? I'm not going to say I called them personally and had a long conversation with your parents, but... Here's the thing. I think that I just know what I like, but to others... Oh, so you are picky. Well, no, 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 no. That's not what she said. She said she knows what she likes. I can read between the lines. (laughs) What about you, Brendan? Are you a picky eater? Yes and no. I mean, it's like... (laughs) So... Go on. I'll I'll eat anything, but... It has to come from Iowa. No, I was going to say, like, I'm at a point in my life where if I'm going to consume calories, I want them to be good, tasty calories. Oh, so you're like one of those people. Yeah, like I'm not going to eat terrible <laughs> food that's also terrible for me. I think there's something that happens when you like turn 32 where you're like not 32 but 30 mm. as well. Also, yes. that like your body starts to make it clear there's like a turning point yes. where you're just like, "Oh, so this happens when I eat this." So probably yeah. not. But I used to be a pick eater. I wouldn't eat many vegetables. It was tough. Mm. I just don't like seafood. That's you're like a, you're an easterner. You're saying like I should because I'm from the yeah East. yeah okay got it yeah growing up I didn't like red sauce or black olives or any like green seasoning and my family's very Italian so mm. I've been hearing about it my whole life I like those things now but mushrooms and seafood I cannot get behind oh wow that's Sorry. tough is it like a texture thing I just know I don't like them you uh, know wow that's fair <laughs> yeah. I mean listen you tried it yeah you had yeah. your two bites yeah. which is the rule in our house yeah and the no um, thank you serving is yeah what the it's no thank you that's not too bad <laughs> well have either of you consumed a lot of grass and i'm not I'm talking about <laughs> what kind of metaphor grass? Grass. i'm talking mm. about actual like grass just grass like lawn clippings yeah lawn clippings yeah. is what i'm thinking uh, here i don't remember if i've ever eaten grass brendan's sure. like of course <laughs> in iowa when we farm we always have a, There's always a little, grass little in our piece of straw have you tyler I have not. Mm. No, I've been in places where they do eat it and it's not ideal for them or anyone else. But Nebuchadnezzar turns into somebody who eats grass today. And that's quite why I'm curious if that was all you had left. Guess give it a try. Yeah. 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 To find out how we get there, Brendan, why don't you take us through our commentary for today? Day eight, becoming a beast. Today's reading narrates the interpretation and fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. As we've read, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about a cosmic tree that was cut down and transformed into a beast. Now, Daniel reveals that Nebuchadnezzar is the tree and that he would quite literally take on animal-like qualities. Nebuchadnezzar's degeneration into a beast plays off key ideas from the opening chapters of the Bible. 
Genesis 1, 26-27 teaches that God created humankind in his image. Interestingly, that word image is equivalent to the word that's used to refer to statues in Daniel 2 and 3. As God's statue-like images, humans were given the privilege of representing God as kings and queens over the earth. This role included the responsibility of ruling over beasts. Unfortunately, as the following chapters of Genesis make clear, humans repeatedly failed to rule over beasts. They were deceived by crafty animals, and beasts like sin came to rule over them. In Nebuchadnezzar's first dream in chapter 2, God told Nebuchadnezzar that the king had the same responsibility as God's original image bearers, the job of ruling over beasts. This responsibility is symbolized in the present dream by the portrayal of Nebuchadnezzar as a tree under which wild animals found shelter. However, Daniel's interpretation of the dream makes it clear that Nebuchadnezzar's pride and violence against the people he ruled would culminate in his own ironic downfall. Instead of ruling over the beasts, he would become one. Nebuchadnezzar's metamorphosis into a beast highlights a theme we will continue to see throughout the book of Daniel. When we fail in our role as God's image bearers by lording our power over others, we become more beast-like than human. Now things don't have to end this way. God promises restoration for those who acknowledge their mistakes, but for those who continue to devour their victims, God will bring down those beasts. For day 8, we're reading Daniel chapter 4, verses 19 through 37. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven, and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze, in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. 
He was driven away from his people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases, with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Kelly, you want to read our reflection questions for day eight? Question one. In Mark 4, 30-32, Jesus shares a parable that plays off themes from Daniel 4. Jesus says, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Based on Jesus' parable and Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what characteristics might distinguish the kingdom of God from the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar? Question two. The closing words of this chapter highlight an important principle. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. When have you seen pride humbled? What pride might God want to humble in you? It seems very interesting that uh, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a vegetarian today. He's eating only grass. He is eating only grass. I guess they didn't say he's only eating grass. That's a core part of his sure. diet. His, his now. diet, yep. He has to well, forage like the animals. Yep. Right. So he's probably eating berries. And Anyways, why did this happen to him? It seemed like he was on the up and up. He was on the up and up. He's proclaimed the Lord of Lords and like, you know, he's got a pretty healthy respect for the God of Daniel and I don't understand why is this happening to him. I mean, the main reason it happens is because he has the dream, right? And then 12 months later, he does something that basically brings about the fulfillment of the dream. He's walking around on his royal palace. And Nebuchadnezzar, we know this from scripture, but we also definitely know this from archaeology and extra biblical inscriptions and things like this, that Nebuchadnezzar was a huge builder. Like, that's one of the things he did. He built a lot of great buildings and palaces. You've heard about the hanging gardens of Babylon. Yeah. We actually don't know if those actually existed because they haven't really... They're just from legend and Could be a legend, and... but still... The the idea here is that it's a guy who's able to create these wonders, build these great wonders for the sake of his name. And so he's looking across Babylon, he's examining all that he's done. And what does he say? He says in verse 30, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. So we see here Nebuchadnezzar acting in pride, doing the types of things that throughout this whole book, God has been condemning and God brings about the fulfillment of the dream where he takes this being who was great, who had power over all nations, effectively. Not really, but what we know about the world this time, what they knew about the world at this time, he was the leader of nations and peoples of every language. And he the was king of kings, if He you was will. the king of kings. Yeah, yep. exactly. Well, and I think it's interesting too, because when Daniel interprets this dream, he kind of tells him what to do at the end. He yeah. tells him what he's doing wrong. He says, accept my advice and renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. So it sounds like he's not being very kind to those who are oppressed at this point. No, he hasn't been. The 
dude. What? <laughs> Since but, when? It's easy to read these stories and see him like celebrating Daniel and his friends, but you have to remember he also was really close to killing Daniel and his I'm friends. I'm guessing Daniel at any point would be happy to go home. We'll see that in chapter nine. So we'll talk about that a little bit then. I didn't know that was happening. Yeah. I didn't mean to spoil <laughs> it. <laughs> Another spoiler. I'm sorry. But yeah, he has him in kind. He's the most powerful man in the world and he's used it to build himself up to make his name great. And I actually love that instruction we get from Daniel, renounce your sins by doing what is right. I think sometimes we think all we have to do is confess our sins, but actually the way you renounce your sins, the way you repent of your sins is by doing the right thing. Again, I say, what? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Why? It seems like I can just, you know, say sorry, but I guess not. It's not what Daniel's saying. Yeah. Well, I feel like every time I read these passages, I have to say the same thing over and over multiple times in different sections. And for this one, I think between yesterday and today, I've said it like six times. Yeah. Like the tree is there and he's the shade for everybody, the food for everybody and the beasts live under and then you get chopped down and like then you get the dew of heaven and all that. Like it's the same every time. What's the same? There's so much emphasis. This story about like what the tree's role is, but also what will happen to the tree and like how it has to do with nature and like your role in it. Why is it emphasized so many times? I think you said this earlier too, Tyler, of Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar the answer. It's renounce your sins. And so he keeps using this illustration over and over again because Nebuchadnezzar is so blinded by his pride that he can't see what's right in front of him and repeat it over and over again. So we see these same themes all through Daniel and Mm -hmm. these different analogies. And in this case, it's multiple times this tree that shades the animals. And that's an illustration that we see throughout the Bible and in different things. I love that. What we've seen throughout the book of Daniel is this evolution of this image theme. We talked about, did we talk about that today? Did I read this or was that yesterday? That was yesterday too. It's yesterday and today. I just get the days mixed up. But the evolution of this image theme, like, so he dreams of a statue, then he builds a statue. Well, the word translated as statue is the same word that there's a difference in language between the Aramaic of Daniel and the Hebrew of Genesis, but the related terms, the word image of God, the thing that we are created to be, we are created to be that thing, that statue, that representation of God on earth, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why I think God says don't make any idols. Because in a sense, God has done that. This is his cosmic temple, and we are the things that are supposed to represent him in his space. Now, there's much more to that command, but I think that's at least part of it, this idea that God doesn't need another thing to represent him because he's already made something that's living, that's alive, that really can and should represent him. And one of the commands God gave to humans originally was to rule over beasts. He gave us this commission, and what we see in Daniel now is this sort of working backwards of that theme, where Nebuchadnezzar, the same language used to describe the image of God in Genesis 1, used to describe Nebuchadnezzar, sort of God's representative, a special kind of royal representative that not only oversees animals, but also oversees humans, but who abuses that authority. And so as a result, he becomes like the things he was supposed to rule. He becomes a beast. So really what we see here is an outworking of what we read about in the opening chapters of Genesis 1 through 4. We see it in Genesis 3, for example where these image bearers are tricked by a beast. They're manipulated by a beast into disobeying God. Then in Genesis 4, there's this really interesting verse where God says to Cain, something like, sin is crouching at your door like a beast. This is animal type Mm. of language. You must rule over that beast. Of course, as we know, Cain fails to do that. And so again, we uh, know that. Yeah, right. (laughs) I, I totally remember that. Yeah, yeah. But the point is that when we fail to live as the images, the statues that God has placed on earth with justice, then we become like beasts. And that's what we see in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's what we're going to see specifically in Daniel 7. 
you keep saying Daniel seven. It's Would a you great come cha- down and just wait. Well, for it's a the most. In, days? We've talked. I don't know if we've talked about this. It's the most important chapter, and so we can't miss it. It's That's the right. Hinge. Yeah, yeah, the hinge. And yeah. if you leave out Daniel seven and the rest of Daniel, then you're missing over half you've, of the point. Even though Daniel one through six is fun, they're great stories. They're great stories. But they Brendan they says. illustrate what Daniel seven and actually Daniel eight talk about. And Daniel nine. You said that earlier. Well, there are too. no beasts in Daniel nine, but sure, Daniel sure. seven and eight we actually do see beasts. <laughs> well, I wouldn't know that. I haven't gotten there yet. Slow down. <laughs> Well, the interesting thing that we said that we were going to do for all of this book was we were going to say, how do we place ourselves as both characters? And so for this story, Daniel makes an appearance again, but even this story is illustrated from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. So I'm curious for you guys, how are we the Daniels in this story, but how are we the Nebuchadnezzars of this story? Something that came to my mind as Brendan was talking is, so God created us in his image. We learned that in Genesis, but then also tells us not to make idols out of the people around us or the things around us. And so I think that creates this really interesting tension that I think Nebuchadnezzar didn't figure out. He went so far into creating himself as an idol that he had to be humbled into the status of a beast. Mm -hmm. But I think it leaves us with a really interesting question of what's the difference between seeing ourselves as made in God's image and not seeing ourselves as idols this tension of seeing ourselves as having value and worth and characteristics that God has given us as being his image bearers, but not elevating ourselves so far that we got out of the equation. Yeah. You know, like when I think... So we aren't God, is what you're saying. We are a representation of, and at any point, our reflection could be off. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly it. And truth is, that's kind of what idols were in the ancient world. They were representations of gods. Now, again, what scripture has to say about the idols of other gods and us as images, there's a difference between the two, but there's this balance we have to weigh, this tightrope we have to walk where basically we have to recognize that every person in this world has dignity, has authority. We should treat every single person as though they're like a king or queen on earth because that's what God created them to be, to be his representatives. We also have to recognize that there's a difference between being a representative and being the thing. And it seems like Nebuchadnezzar was dead set on becoming the thing. We've talked about this with Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV, he takes on this title Epiphanes, which means God manifests. So this is something we see oftentimes in leaders, at least in the ancient world. And I suppose in subtle ways today, leaders sometimes promote themselves as being like gods on earth. They do. Right, they wouldn't. They wouldn't say it because I'm it's really sassy today. It's so. public. <laughs> they wouldn't say it because it's politically problematic. But of course, I mean, when you rule, when you seize authority, when you hold down others and don't elevate those around you and recognize their dignity and value and worth, then that's what you're doing. So the question was, how are we like Daniel and how are we like Nebuchadnezzar? I think Daniel, it picks up on themes from previous stories where he's able to interpret a dream. And actually, we see Babylonian wise men in this story just briefly, just a hint. What the irony of this story is, before they couldn't tell the dream, they were like, we can interpret your dream if you tell us what it is. But they couldn't tell it. Now they can't even interpret it. So they look like fools. And Daniel steps in and, of course, does the thing he's been doing this whole time. It's like Nebuchadnezzar asked for the manager. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's in charge of all them. Exactly. He's like, "Uh, can I speak to the manager, please? Exactly. Bring me Daniel. And Daniel does it. And as we've learned, the reason he can do that is because he's faithful to God, because he's in a relationship with God, prays to God. And when you have that sort of a relationship with God, God does open your eyes to see things. God does give you wisdom. God does help you. He helps Daniel interpret this dream. And Daniel, like this is a scary thing for him to do. Yeah, I was going to say he's greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. Because this is something that could bring about his demise. Yeah, for sure. Like it's dangerous to tell the most powerful man in the world that you are a tree 
tree that's going to be cut down. And as a human, you're going to transform into a beast and live amongst the animals and eat grass. Like that's scary to say to someone like that. It would have been easy for other dream interpreters at that time to manipulate, to change the dream. And this is why in Daniel 2, for instance, Nebuchadnezzar says to his wise men, I want you to tell me the dream because I don't believe that you're going to give me an interpretation that reflects what's actually going to yeah. happen to me. And so it's a scary thing. So he has the courage to do it. It's not just that he has connection to God, but when he learns from God, what is the truth? What is the thing he needs to say to Nebuchadnezzar? He has the courage to speak to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's easier said than done, for sure. Yeah. And the other thing that he does is he does it through compassion, not through yeah. like this idea that that's like true. truth should prevail. You know, he says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and it's meaning to your adversaries. You know, he's wishing goodwill upon the yeah. king. He's, you know, partially because it greatly affects his outcome, but you can't sidestep this fact that he does speak a lot of truth. And he says, my advice, renounce your sins by doing what is right in your wickedness, by being kind to the oppressed. Daniel is one of the oppressed that he's saying <laughs> that he should do that. So it takes a lot of courage to stand up to people who have ultimate power and ultimate authority. Mm -hmm. So that's Daniel. How do we be more like him, I guess? More yeah. courageous. But how are we like Nebuchadnezzar? I feel like that's the easier question for me to answer because the amount of times someone either tells me or I know the right answer or like the way to get out of a situation, but I'm too stubborn or I think I know better or whatever other reason I ignore it and end up getting myself into trouble or mm. just like in a more complex situation. And I always end up right back at what someone mm. had told me. But I think pride blinds us and takes us down paths that end up having to teach us a lesson and bring us back to the wisdom that maybe someone had told us in the first place. One of the things that stands out to me in this story is that the judgment that comes upon Nebuchadnezzar doesn't happen immediately. It happens 12 months later, mm -hmm. and it's from something he does 12 months later. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I think there are times in our lives where we become remorseful, where we recognize, oh, this is wrong. Like what I've been doing, what I've been saying, the way I've been acting, this is a problem. But it's easy for us later on, especially a year later, yeah. to fall into the same trap, to move away from that place where we're remorseful and want to change and make those changes to a place where we're doing the same old things again. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. And that's actually what we've seen through every story. He keeps on recognizing that God, he's the Lord of kings. He's the one who's really in control of the kings of this world. But he keeps finding himself in situations where he has pride, where he wants to cut others down, where he wants to make statues of himself. And so 12 months later, he's looking at what all he's done, all the things he's built, the name he's established for himself. And in that moment of pride, God judges him. And I guess the lesson for us that I see in that is like the change God asks us to make, it's not just like a one-time thing. It's a change we need to make every day where we remember, again, that God is king of the world, that we are just his representatives. And as his royal representatives, the way we represent him is by living in the ways that the king would, the way Jesus did when he walked on earth in the gospels. I think it's interesting that like, you know, he's up on the top of his palace looking at all he's created and proclaiming how great he is. And yet in previous chapters, he's proclaimed that, yes, Daniel, your God is the God of all gods. Everybody should follow what he says. If anybody doesn't, let him be cut into pieces. Well, what happens when he doesn't? Mm. Turns out he's, he's goes into the field. He becomes a beast. Yep. It reminds me a lot of the uh, Emperor's New Groove. Oh, yeah. Because like, that's what happens to Cusco, right? You know what? That's the one like Disney classic cartoon i have what seen. yeah it's kind of like I a feel transition like stage I'm but like you should go bit. watch it tonight because yeah. that's what happens he's all about himself he has yeah. statues to himself his face painted on all the vases and he and then becomes a beast. he becomes a llama <laughs> a llama yep. the other thing that i think is important in this story is that okay <laughs> no, I, i'll let going. you guys have your moment your keep ability going, to just yeah. like go past it you're like yeah okay <laughs> 
And the other thing I think we shouldn't miss in this story is that there is genuine repentance at the end. At least it seems that way. Yeah. He looks up to heaven and in that act, because that's all he can do as an animal is to look to heaven, in that act of humility, of recognition that God is the Lord of kings, that he is the true king, he's the king of this world, in that moment, God restores him. God raises him back up again when he's willing to repent. And in future stories, there are going to be kings like this that aren't willing to repent. And so it's also important for us to recognize that if we're willing to do that sort of thing, that God will restore us. That's why it's a stump, right? When you cut down a tree, you don't always leave a stump, but there's a stump that God leaves in place in this dream because his goal, his plan for Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately that he'll be cut down, but he'll grow back up into something that's better than what he was before. Yeah, I was going to say, not only does God restore him, but it says in 36, right, that he was restored to his throne and became even greater than before, Yeah, which I think is wild because yeah. I think it just shows that, again, you were talking yesterday, there was a question about the upside down kingdom. God doesn't play by our rules of what people deserve. And just because he was an impressive leader, I think, at least for me, I'm like, well, even if he gets restored to his power before, he definitely shouldn't get any more because he still did a lot of bad stuff. But that's not how God's mercy and grace works. And mm -hmm. Lucky for me, because I would be in big trouble if it was conditional. But I think that's an interesting kind of slit in there. That I was just going to say, Kelly, you'd be in trouble if yeah. it was you know, conditional like <laughs> yeah. that, man, yeah. of all the people. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be in trouble. Real. Yeah. It is interesting that, you know, he says, renounce your sins and do what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And you've got to believe that that changed his experience somehow changed him in order to reach favor with God again. And, you know, he raised his eyes to heaven and his sanity was restored. There's got to be some sort of change of heart for somebody to be able to be restored in God's kingdom. It can't be just lip service. Yeah, the actions change. Exactly. That's the hope. That's the reason for the judgment. It's because God wanted something better out of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what we saw in the very opening verses of the book. God sometimes uses really negative people, unfortunately, to do his work in the world. It's a hard thing for us to hear, but sometimes the Israelites needed to learn they weren't faithful to God, that they weren't living lives of justice. And so he brought on people like Nebuchadnezzar to show them that you've been like Nebuchadnezzar's yeah. to the people of your society. So you need to learn a lesson. That's what he does to Nebuchadnezzar now. He wants to teach him, just as the Israelites had oppressed the weak, the marginalized in their society, Nebuchadnezzar, you have been unkind to the oppressed. That's the language we see here. And so you need to change your ways or else you're going to be humbled. Fun fact, that word sanity that you mentioned can also be translated to knowledge, right? And it's the same Aramaic oh. word used in chapter 2, verse 21, when it says God gives knowledge to the discerning. That theme again of wisdom, of knowledge yeah. that comes from God. God gives it. Well, you know, we joked a lot yesterday about yesterday was election day. And I'm, again, at this time of recording as well before we the election. We have no idea. We have no idea what the results or I what today know. brings. I think have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good thing. And I think it's what you just said, Brendan, is really true. Like, depending on which way politically you lean, you probably view both sides as wicked or one side or the other as more wicked or more dangerous than the other. And that's the kind of our calming understanding that God brings about his kingdom and brings about his will through people who are wicked and broken. And sometimes it's painful through it, but what you can rest assured in, whether the results are the way you want them to be or not, God is ultimately in control. God reigns as king, and so we need to trust and give our allegiance to him. That doesn't mean we step away from the society in which we live mm -hmm. and act in ignorance, act as though we're just living here as foreigners on earth and our citizenship is... Yeah, of course our citizenship is in heaven, but what Paul means when he says we are citizens of heaven, he means we are citizens of the kingdom of God, which is present on earth because of what Jesus has done, because of what he did in the cross, because of how he rose from the dead and how he's now seated on a throne beside the Father. And so that means we have a role in this world to help manifest that kingdom as his image bearers, as his representatives.
Yeah, it even ends this account from King Nebuchadnezzar. He drops this truth bomb on us. He says everything that he, the Lord God, does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Doesn't matter who wins the election. Doesn't matter who's in charge of your office. Doesn't matter who's in charge of your church. If they walk in pride, the Lord is still able to humble them. And it's only the humble leader who has an experience of caring for and empathizing for those who they have control over, the oppressed that those people will be raised up. And, you know, we all probably have a lot to learn in that area of how do we care for those we don't see every day as being oppressed. And it's a call then for those who are in leadership. It's a call to our new president, whoever that is and is going to be. You guys probably don't even know at this point. But whoever that is, like, change your ways. If there's something that that person needs to do that's different, they need to change their ways. If there are things that as leaders of our organizations and families and churches and whatever, like if there are things we need to change, then change our ways. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, because God will raise up those who are humble and he'll bring down those who have pride. And let's be real, like these kingdoms, whatever empire we're building, these things are not meant long for this world. Everything will have a beginning and everything will have an end on this earth. Nothing lasts forever except for the kingdom of God. So if you're not in the business of implementing the kingdom, what business are you in? And what I love, what you say there, the one thing that we see living forever, there's a theme we've seen in the opening chapters that we haven't really talked about. Oftentimes when people would talk to King Nebuchadnezzar, they would say, may the king live forever. Oh, king, live forever. Well, what we're going to see is that king does not live forever. There's only one king who Mm -hmm. lives forever. And Nebuchadnezzar finally recognizes that. He says in verse 34, then I praise the most high, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And what we've learned in this chapter and in other chapters and in future chapters is that that king, the one who lives forever, is offering a kingdom that will reign forever for those who choose to give their allegiance to him, to be loyal to him, and say that your ways are going to be my ways. Your kingdom is going to be the kingdom in which I live, and I'm going to honor you in all that I do. Thanks for joining us today for the Journey Through Daniel podcast. If this is your first time, so glad that you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org. And follow us for updates at Willow Creek NS on Instagram. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check us out at willowcreek.org. We'll see you next time.